0: That's something to look forward to. We will feast in the house of Zion. Well, it is a pleasure seeing you here worshiping with us today. I know it's, uh, it's kind of a light Sunday. There are a lot of people sick right now. And that, uh, that stinks, but we are, we are very happy to see you here. Very happy to worship with you today. My name is Jason Averill. I am the assistant pastor here at Grace And for the past uh, several months, we have been in a sermon series for our fall uh, called, Who is Jesus? And we've been addressing that question again and again from different perspectives, getting a different look at who Jesus is at every point. Last week, we looked at the resurrection, and Wilson preached on what it means that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that he commissions us to go out in the Great Commission to convert the nations. This week, we'll be wrapping up our series. This will be the final one. And we'll be looking at who Jesus is as the returning king. What it means that Jesus will come again. And what that reveals about him to us. So let's pray. And then we can dive in. Father, we do thank you for this day of worship, this day of rest. We... Thank you for the opportunity to sing praises to our Lord Jesus. It's a privilege that you've given us, and it's one that we relish every Sunday. Lord, we ask that as we turn to your word, as we turn to worshiping you through studying your word, that you send the Holy Spirit to be amongst us. We know that you have promised that to us. We pray that you direct our eyes and our hearts to Jesus, and Holy Spirit, we do pray that you illumine our minds and make us attentive to the word of God today, amen. So, like I said last week, we did Matthew 28, that's the resurrection, and this week we'll actually be backing up a little bit in the text. Um... We're going to be doing Matthew 24. I say that, but actually we're going to be skipping around the entire Bible. The primary text that we're going to be referencing is Matthew 24. But there are many, many other texts about Jesus' return that we're going to be talking about. And um, as I preach, I, I probably won't reference every single, uh, every single passage in the Bible that I'm using. But I will say, if, if you're curious about the reference... Uh, just email me or text me and uh, I can get that to you. So in Matthew 24 we come into this story. Jesus has uh, gone through the uh, triumphal entry on Sunday and this is the last week and this is probably two, maybe three days before the Lord's Supper, the sorry the last Supper. and his disciples are talking to him and they start asking him questions about, you know, the end of the world. He tells them this prophecy that the temple is going to be destroyed. And so they have two questions at the beginning of chapter 24, and that's when is the temple going to be destroyed, and what's the sign going to be when you come back? And you see, the disciples, you know, so integral was the temple to their faith, they assumed that if the temple was going to be destroyed, that that would mean that, you know, Christ would be coming back very soon after the temple was destroyed. And so they conflated the two questions, and they asked them both at the same time. And with the benefit of 2,000 years of history, though, we know that though the disciples thought these questions were related, they're actually not. And so Jesus, in his answer, he's answering both of those questions. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., We're now some 2,000 years after that, almost, and Jesus still hasn't come back. And we're left with that second question, though. What's going to be the sign of your return? What's going to be the sign of the second coming? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Our passage is Matthew chapter 24. We're going to read starting in verse 29. Please stand. For the reading of God's word. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the, of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man. And then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other. And then we'll skip down to verse 36. But but concerning that day, the hour... Sorry, I'll start again. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this that if the master of the house has known in what had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Thus far, the reading of God's Word all men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But God's Word stands forever. So let us turn our attention to it. You may be seated. Again, we're confronted with this question who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we see here that Jesus is the returning king. We're looking, it's kind of appropriate that this ends our series on who is Jesus, because next week we'll actually be looking at Advent. You know, we'll be entering the Advent uh, season. And this is what's frequently referred to as the second Advent. And so we have questions about it. How do we prepare? How do we wait How is it that we have patience while we wait on the Lord? It has been 2,000 years and he hasn't come back yet. And I know for many of us, we grow weary. So we're going to be talking about that today. We're going to be talking uh, about how we wait for Jesus' return. And we're going to be looking at three things from this passage. We're going to be looking at the return itself, what the Bible says about Jesus' return. We're going to be looking at the judgment And we're going to be looking at the heavenly city. So the return, the judgment, and the heavenly city. So starting off, let's look now at Jesus' return. What do we know from this passage about his return? Well, first off, we know that it's going to happen suddenly. That nobody's going to be prepared for it. It's going to be unexpected It's going to come at an unknown time and even an unknowable time. He says this in verse 36, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but the father only. It's going to be an unexpected return. Nobody's going to be prepared for it. Or I would rather say nobody's going to be looking for it on that day. He says this again in verse 43 and 44, he says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you all also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, why, why is it that Jesus is coming at an hour that we don't expect? Why do you think that is? Well, I think that's kind of the point of his return, you know. Part of his <clears throat> return is to decide who is faithful and who is not. Who loves him, who doesn't. And if he tells us exactly when he's going to come back, then nat- our natural inclination is going to put off pursuing him. It's going to put off knowing who he is. That's just how it is. That's how we are as humans. We love to procrastinate. But this is a call that doesn't allow that. Because Jesus could come back. Today. During the service. After the service. He could come back in two years. He couldn't come back in t- for 8,000 years. We don't know. And that's the point. This motivates us. It also leaves us without excuse. Now. Now. The next point of his return is that he comes again, and when he comes, he comes in power and glory. This is the second half of verse 30. He says, and then the, <clears throat> the tribes, all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You see, the first time that Jesus came to earth, he came meek and mild. He became God incarnate, took on flesh, came as a baby, grew up as a man. He was meek, lowly, gentle. And in describing this part of Jesus' life, Paul says this, it's from Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is Christ's humiliation. This is, that's how theologians describe it. That Jesus, when he sets aside his deity, this is his humiliation. And he sets it aside, and he becomes a meek, mild, incarnate God. And that's how he comes. But when he comes back, his second coming will not be meek and mild. No, his second coming, he is going to come back in power, and great glory. And it's there that we actually see the second part of, ...of what Paul talks about in Philippians. That's his exaltation. That's part of it. He says, starting in verse 9... ...therefore God has highly exalted him... ...and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name... ...so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow... ...in heaven and on earth and under the earth... ...and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord... ...to the glory of God the Father... When he comes back, he's coming in power and glory, and that's going to be fulfilled. It's going to be very evident who Jesus is, that he is the king, that he is in control. And every knee will bow to him. The third thing that we see about his return is that everybody's going to see it. We look again at verse 30 and 31. Then we'll appear in heaven... The sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The return will be sudden, it will be unexpected, it will be something that nobody can peg down when it's going to happen. But it won't be secret. You know, we hear taught many times that Jesus, when he comes back, since he's coming back as a thief in the night, you know, we're not gonna notice. And in fact, entire theology has sprung up around this, about a secret rapture where Christians are just spirited away. But that's not how Jesus pictures his second coming here. No, his second coming is big. It's visible. It's not a secret. In fact, As he's coming back, he's witnessed by all the tribes of the earth. And this isn't the only time in scripture that we see this. Paul talks about this in Thessalonians. We see this also in Revelation. That Jesus, when he comes back, it will be a surprise. But it will be a surprise for everyone. It's sudden. It's not secret. So we don't know the the day or the hour but we are told when it's going to happen we are told when it's going to happen so if we look at revelation chapter 6 this is starting in verse 10 so what's going on here the the saints in in heaven before the resurrection they're under the altar of God and they're crying out to God And it says, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. We're told when it's going to happen. Not specifically. But we're told that the second coming is going to happen when the final brother comes in. When that last person who's in the Lamb's book of life has been converted. That's when it happens. That's when the second coming is happening. And we don't know when that's going to be, but it's going to be glorious. It is going to be glorious. So that's how Jesus returns and somewhat when he returns. But what's going to happen? What's going to happen when he returns? You know, in the wake of Jesus coming in the in the clouds in power and glory, what's going to happen? Well, that's actually the start of the judgment. Now, the judgment is scary to most of us. We we feel the weight of our own sin. Our conscience can accuse us. Even Satan will come along and he will accuse us. He will try to terrify us with the judgment. And that makes us afraid of the judgment. But properly understood, I would actually argue that for believers, for believers the judgment should be a glorious thing. It should be something that we look forward to. And so that's how we'll we'll try to look at it now. It is scary, but it should not be scary for believers. So, before the judgment, what happens? Jesus comes back. What's, what's kind of the first step? If we look at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus tells us, He says, Sorry, let's go back to verse 25. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so the first thing that happens when Jesus comes back is the resurrection. Everybody, everybody on the face of the planet, everybody who has ever lived will be raised to newness of life. That's the first step. Everybody is bodily raised. And then, then comes the judgment. That's when the judgment begins. So what will the judgment be like? We actually don't have a ton of details about what it's going to be like. We aren't given a lot of specifics in the Bible. Jesus tells us that nothing will stay hidden. He tells us that anything done in secret will be revealed That all of our deeds will be brought out into the light. He also tells us that even our careless words will be brought out into the light and come under judgment. Nothing is going to escape that. And he says that we will have to give an account for ourselves. Now, it's, it's good to know these few specifics, but like I said, these are only a few specifics, and... For the rest, we're actually just given a little generality. And so, most of the time when God refers to the judgment in Scripture, it is in that general sense. It's in that sense that there are some people who are saved and some people who aren't. So let's read in verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then, and they were unaware, until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, About this specific passage, many people look at this passage, many other theologians from other uh, strands of faith look at this passage, and they see a a secret rapture. They see that when Jesus comes, people are going to be taken, but that's actually not the image here. And we know that because Jesus starts off by saying that this is the second coming, his second coming, and it's going to be like the days of Noah. What were the days of Noah? The days of Noah were a judgment. It was a judgment upon the earth. And so this is a picture of the judgment. And so Jesus here, he refers to Noah as and the judgment of the flood. And when we read then, who's swept away? Who's swept away in the flood? The people who are swept away in the flood are the unrighteous. It's Noah that stays. He enters the ark and is preserved. And so when we read here that one man will be taken and the other will be left, that's the sense in which we read it. It's this binary thing where there are two people and there are two states There's one state where you are judged unrighteous. One state where you are judged righteous. One state where you are swept away. And the other state where you remain. Now, here and in other times in Scripture, we actually see that the judgment is spoken of many times relationally. You know, the, the unbelievers, they... So if we go just a little bit farther into the text, and we won't read this, but Jesus gets in to two different parables here. He has the parable of the ten virgins. Okay, And if you remember this, ten virgins have assembled. They're going to a wedding feast, and the prince is delayed. And so they have lanterns for their procession, and five of them have taken extra oil, and the other five have not taken any extra oil, and they all fall asleep. And then they wake up when the prince comes. And the ones with oil, they go to the wedding feast. And the ones without oil, they go to buy oil. Last minute preparations. Let's get it, get what we need and go. And then they go up to the door and it's shut. And the prince says, I don't know you. And we see that when Jesus is talking previously in Matthew where people will go to him and they will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. And he says, away with me. I never knew you. He's talking about judgment as a relational thing, knowing who he is, knowing him as savior. We see that in the parable of the talents, which comes right after the 10 virgins. And... In that parable, we actually have three people. We have two people who are faithful servants who love the Lord. And the Lord is going away to claim his kingdom. And when he goes away to claim his kingdom, he gives the first servant ten talents and the second servant five. And they go, and in great joy, they invest the money, they trade, they make him a lot of money. And then when he comes back, they give it to him with joy. The third servant, third servant doesn't do that. No, the third servant instead takes the money that he's been given and he hides it. And why does he do that? He says that he did it because, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. He didn't love the Lord. He didn't love his Lord at all. No, in fact, right there, he just accused the Lord of being a thief. He accused him of reaping where he didn't sow, profiting from other people's labor, and not deserving it. No. That's why he was condemned, because... Not because he didn't make any money. It was a very, comparatively, a very little expense to the Lord. No, the problem was his attitude. That he didn't love the Lord. The judgment is spoken of relationally. And because of this, unbelievers, whenever they come under judgment, they won't be able to marshal any defense. Because when Jesus says, I never knew you, that will be just. It will be true. It will be evident that that is true because their entire life has been examined. The judgment for them will be absolutely just, absolutely fair. And in that fairness, in that justice, they will be consigned to the outer darkness for all eternity. So what about believers? What about believers? You know, I just said that Jesus has told us that nothing hidden is going to stay hidden. Everything's going to be brought out into the light and everybody's going to be called To account even for the careless words. So what about believers? When they stand in the judgment. What What will it be like for us? So as we stand before Jesus. We'll actually be standing before him. Washed by his blood. We'll be standing before him. In righteousness. And any sins that we have committed that get brought out, have already been nailed to the cross and atoned for. And we bear the guilt no more. They have been dropped into the depths of the sea, just like we read in our assurance of pardon. And on top of that, we have all these good works. Now, these good works, of course, we don't do them of ourselves. We're actually told that by Paul. The the good works that we do have been prepared for us God is actually making sure that we do them. He's guiding us as we do them. And yet, we see here in the parable of the talents that the two servants that actually love their Lord, how does he respond to them? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so our good deeds as they come out. I don't know if it's going to be one statement from the master. Or if it's going to be over and over and over again to drive it home. But we are going to hear, well done. Good and faithful servant. And not because of the good that we have done. We're going to be commended because of the good that Jesus has done through us. Because of his record. So, those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, they're they're exiled to hell. They're in the outer darkness forever. But those who have been saved will be in the heavenly kingdom. Will be in the heavenly city. So what will that be like? What does the heavenly city look like? How is it described? It's not here in this text except that Jesus actually mentions that his angels will go out and collect the elect. That anybody who is his will be with him because his angels are sent out to make sure of that. But we do, we do see quite a bit of what it'll be like in our call to worship. It's Revelation Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. Yeah. So, first off, what we see there is that it's not just unbelievers, you know, that have been cast into the outer darkness. It's actually unbelievers and Satan. It's all of Satan's angels, all of his minions. Death itself is abolished. The heaven that is going to be the new heavens, we have been raised, and we've been raised with new bodies to enter it. And as we're raised with new bodies into this new heaven, the perishable has put on the imperishable, like Paul said. Sin and its evil in you will have been finally and forever purged. And nothing, nothing sinful or evil will be in the new heavens and earth. In fact, we won't even be able to sin anymore. We won't want to. It won't be possible We won't have the desire, we won't have the willpower, and we will be face-to-face with our Savior finally and forever. And because we won't be able to sin anymore, this is one of my greatest joys when I think about it, we won't be able to hurt anyone anymore. You know, you will never again fly off the handle and wound your brothers and sisters with your anger. That will never happen again. Because you will be with Jesus, safe, secure, pure. And the evil is no more. You will never again lie to anybody in order to save face. Never again. Because you are safe in Jesus. Clothed in his righteousness. You will never again mourn or be sad. Never be depressed or anxious. Because the former things have passed away, and God has wiped away every tear from your eye, you will never again wake up in the morning and dread the coming day, because you know it's going to be a hard day. You'll never experience that again, because the former things have passed away. And the curse, you know, all the way back at creation, in Genesis chapter 3, and we've brought this up several times throughout the sermon uh, sermon series, sorry. That the curse comes in in Genesis chapter 3. As a result, we have the fall. And it goes out over all mankind. And the promise right at the very beginning is that there is somebody coming. Somebody coming who's going to do battle with that serpent, who's going to crush its head and finally restore our union with God. But until then, we've been laboring under the curse. And that curse will be taken away. Finally and forever rolled back. Never to be seen again. You will be with Jesus forever. A lot of people ask, you know, what will we do in, in the new heavens and earth? You know, will, will we be like those Looney Tunes characters? Will we be up on clouds, you know, with wings and with harps? And the fact is, we don't really know what we'll do. We're not told what we'll do, except that we will worship God in spirit and truth forever, and it will be a pure worship. We know that we'll have our bodies. We know that anything that is good in us will still be there. If you love music, you will still be playing music in heaven. Glory of God, worshiping him through your craft. And oh, like we see the beauty of musicians whenever they write music here, when they've been practicing for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. What is it going to look like? What is it going to sound like when they have been practicing for 10,000 years, 100,000 years? We We can't even begin to guess. There will probably be work in heaven because work wasn't a product of the fall. Work was actually instituted by God. He gave Adam and Eve something to do. So, the first couple before the fall actually had work to do. It's just that the work wasn't frustrating. That was part of the curse. Part of the curse was that the work that we would do would actually frustrate us. And as Adam tilled the ground, thorns and thistles would come out. But now, the work that we're given to do, we won't be frustrated. And it won't be frustrating No, it will be fruitful in ways that we can never imagine right now. So, what do we do in the new heavens and the new earth? We enjoy God for all eternity. The Westminster Shorter Catechism does a really good summary of this. It says in question 38, what benefits do believers have or get from Christ at his resurrection. At the resurrection of believers being raised up in glory they are made perfect to enjoy God forever. It goes on to say that it's not only that they've been made perfect it's when they're raised they're actually put forth before the world Before in the eyes of everyone. And everybody sees their justification. Everybody sees their standing with God. It's a glorious thing. Now, what difference does this make? What difference does this make for us now? You know, I tell people about the coming glory that we have... And sometimes I hear this question, you know, Jason, I know that everything's going to be put right, and that's, that's good. It's good that everything in the end is going to be fine, or even more than fine, but how does that help me now? So there's this principle that we all know, and that's that our expectations of the future actually, they shape our behavior. Now, they shape even how we think about things. We see this in Romans chapter 8 when Paul says that he does not count his present sufferings to be anything in the weight of the glory to come. And that's how it helps. That's true here. Remembering and meditating on our heavenly home doesn't erase the pain and the suffering that we're going through, but it does reshape how we think of it. It does reshape how we react to it. Are you weak? Do you feel that weakness every day? Know that your king is coming back. He's coming back in power and glory and you will be raised to newness of life in an imperishable body and you will never be weak again because you are strong in Christ. Are you sick? You will be given a new body. All illnesses will be healed. You will be finally and forever restored, whole, healthy for all time. Are you depressed? Do you struggle feeling good? Do you struggle receiving the joy of the Christian life? Are you anxious? Your king is coming. And when he comes, he will wipe away every tear from your eye. You will never have to be anxious of anything ever again, because you will be with the king of the universe, face to face. You feel Satan tormenting you? Know that his judgment is coming, because the king is not going to suffer Satan forever. He will be cast into that hour of darkness. Amen. Let us pray. Father, Lord, it's too much. It's too much for us to fully appreciate the coming glory. And yet, Lord, you knew that it was important to us. You knew and decided that it was important to us. And you revealed to us that our Lord is coming back. And that when he comes back, everything will be put right. All of our tears will be dried. And we will dwell in the heavenly city forever. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for that. Jesus, we praise you. Lord, we praise you for saving us for coming to earth as that meek and mild child, living as a man, fully as a man, earning, Lord, that perfect record of righteousness for us. We praise you again for taking all of our sin upon yourself, all so that you could claim us as your own, so that we would be with you in glory forever, and that we would hear well done, good and faithful servant. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you keep our eyes on our Savior. More than that, we ask that you awaken our hearts to the joy, to the joy of our salvation, the immensity of it. That it is not just that we are saved from our sins, but that we are saved to be with you forever. We know that this will happen, that it will come to pass. Amen.